This is the Wealthy Contractor Podcast, brought to you by G4 Marketing. Interviews with today's top home improvement entrepreneurs about marketing, sales, money, mindset, and lifestyle. Now, here's your host, Brian Kaskavalsian. All right, welcome to this episode of the Wealthy Contractor Podcast. This is Brian Kaskavalsian with G4 Marketing. Today, I have got a man that I've known for many, many years. He really is one of the smartest guys in the home improvement business. I'm really happy to have him on today. You're going to get a ton of information that's going to be very useful. Um, I say listen up very closely. This is one you may want to listen to a couple times because you are going to get a ton of good information. So my guest today is Joe Tallman. I'm going to ask Joe to give you a little bit of his background because he's basically done everything in the home improvement business and he can tell you his story a whole lot better than I can. But I first met Joe when he was running a pretty large home improvement company in Ohio. I've known him since, I don't know, it's been seven, eight, nine years. Today, he actually works for Dave Yoho Associates. He is one of their, oh, I don't know, what's the official title, Joe? Senior account executive, Brian. Senior account executive. Joe is on the road every week visiting with different companies, helping them grow their businesses and make more money. This is going to be very, very good. I'll stop talking. And Joe, welcome. Thank you for being here on the podcast. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me, Brian. It is a pleasure to be here with you and your uh, and all the folks that will be listening. Give everybody some of your some of your background. I mean, you've done everything in the home improvement business. Give everybody kind of like the two minute version of your of your background. Well, I was originally working uh, prior to home improvement for a Fortune 500 company for about three years, and a friend of mine was selling windows for a local company. Didn't know anything about it. The only thing that I discovered, I was making about forty grand, and he was making about eighty thousand at that time. Blew my mind. So eventually, I went on a call with this guy. In two and a half hours, he made about $800 in commission. And I only had one question. I asked him, how many times a week are you allowed to do this? Anyway, he laughed and said, as many as you can, of course. I asked him if he could get me an interview. That was my foray into selling home improvements. So I did pretty well. And a few years later, was part of founding a company that was later to become the largest specialty high-end window company in the state of Ohio. We sold, you know, top line products. And quite frankly, we're probably 40 to 70 percent higher than everybody else. Over about 26 years, uh, we did a lot of good things. But as well, we did a lot of the wrong things. And uh, the goal was certainly to learn from those. But along the way, we attracted the attention of some investors. At the end of the run, as president of the company, there was a CEO and then one of the other partners. Our company uh, was approached by some outside investors that wanted to buy the company. And then that actually took place. After that, uh, I was invited to join Dave Yoho Associates, uh, which is the oldest, most well-respected consulting firm in the home improvement industry. And today I visit with people around the country. Some of those people are struggling. Some are doing okay, but can't figure out how to do better. And some are doing very well, but they can't figure out how to get that last 2% in profit that they absolutely need. I have, uh, I like to tell people, I probably perfected more things in this industry than anyone else that were wrong. And I've learned from all those wrong things over almost 30 years now, really put together some great strategies for doing some things better. So that's kind of my story, Brian. There's a lot there. 
I want to let me start with so I'm going to start with profit because that's that's really I mean nobody should be in business today if you're not completely focused on making money. If you're making less than 5% net profit in this business, get out. You're ruining it for the rest of us. When looking at profitability, you said that last 2% that they need. First off, you know, I, I've got my number. Where should a, a home remodeling company, specialty remodeling company be in terms of net profit on uh, sales at the end of the year as a percentage? Yeah, so that's a great question. Most people get confused. So let's first establish that the owner should take out a reasonable salary. I know a lot of folks will take um, 130, 150, 175,000, whatever the number. But at the end of the year, at the bottom of the P&L, after owner's compensation, 10% should be the minimum, the absolute minimum. The goal, whether you reach it or not, should be 15. It's doable, and the best companies are doing it. Many people are between 8 and 12, 8 and 14, 8 and 13, but you should never settle for, be satisfied, less than 10%. Now, there's an important reason why, and that reason is called risk and liability. So if you've got a $3 million company and you're not making 300000 net after you pay yourself and everybody else plus your tax, you're just taking on too much risk and liability by working on other people's homes. It just doesn't make sense. So there's a legacy cost of being in this business. Legacy costs, that ongoing costs that pop up year after year from things you've done in the past. And as a result, the longer you're in business and the bigger you grow your company, the greater the legacy cost. Therefore, you've got to get to 10. Getting to 10 is not impossible if you know how. If you don't, it's a monster struggle. And then the next wave is how do we get above 10? And these are the things I help people do. I've been telling people exactly the same thing. 10% is your absolute rock bottom minimum. I've had people on this podcast that net 20% in this business, and you know people too that are netting 20%. So I just want to piggyback off of what Joe said and say, not only is that, you know, that's your minimum, but also 15%, like Joe said, is very, very doable. So sorry to interrupt, but so what, what are the things that get people to 10? Well, the first thing is you have to have a very well-crafted profit and loss statement. So most owners uh, look at the bottom line of their P&L, that's if they look at it, and just see what's there and start the next month. You need a well-crafted P&L that breaks out everything so that you know the key fundamentals. For example, you need to know exactly what all of your costs for material and labor, M&L, and you have to have a parameter of what that represents. All your sales costs for salesmen and any associated costs. So you can look quickly at a percentage. Now, we manage the business and the profit and loss on the percentages, not the dollars. I have people tell me, I did $7 million in sales last year. I asked them, what was your marketing? Fully loaded, meaning everything that you did in advertising or marketing, shows and events, booth space, uh, labor for the people to work, set up and the teardown, all your printing, everything. And they say, I don't know. That's how you can't get to 10 because you've got to know exactly what your fully loaded marketing cost is, what your fully loaded sales expense is. 
exactly what all your expenses and all the small things that tend to add up as well. What is your overhead? You know, we talk about administrative cost. You've got to know what percent of sales is going to your admin. Is that too high? Is it too low? I mean, you may be causing stress on your business. So here's the easiest way to build 10%. Once your profit and loss statement is well segmented, and this is something that I can review with people in probably 15 minutes and help them uh, go through their own and give them some ideas. But the first thing you do is you reverse engineer your business. So you start at the top of a, take a whiteboard example. We'll just do a back of the envelope example. So the very first thing we write at the top is 10% net profit. Now, most people put a sales goal or they put different things at the top and net profits at the bottom. Hard to get where you want to go that way. So we're going to start with net profit, 10% top line. Next, we're going to write under that. We'll put a line under it, and then we'll write 90%. Now, from 90%, we're going to tell our team, or maybe it's the owner, his wife, or partners, we've got 90% left over to pay our bills and build a business. But nothing can cut into our 10%. So we start with knowing we're going to make 10%. Now, out of 90, we might say, well, material and labor, fully loaded, including all the ancillary, the guys that pick up the dumpsters for trash, and everything is running 42%. Well, immediately we subtract 42 from that 90, and now we know we've only got 48% left. So let's say the company with commission and incentives is at 11% cost of sales to their sales team. Now that's everything. You can't throw in contests and you can't come in with all kinds of extras and not put them in cost of sales. So let's say at the outside, you're at 12% with contest incentives instead of the 11. So then we're going to take 12% off. And now our balance is reduced again. So let's say we take the advertising and marketing. Again, this includes people who answer the phone. It includes the majority. I always use 80% of the phone bill for marketing taking and making calls and setting appointments and talking to people, everything fully loaded. Let's say you're at 8% to 15%. If you're an aggressive marketer, you're probably going to be over 10%. If you're going to build a business to a large level, you're going to be over 10%. The reason is the more you spend, the more you invest, the more you create certain inefficiencies. Now, they're inefficient inside an efficient model. But let's say it's 14%. So we've got 12 for the commission. we got 14 for marketing. So that's now another 36. And we haven't paid for admin and overhead, right? License, insurance. So that leaves us our G&A, general administrative, which includes owner's compensation. So when you factor in what each of those key elements are going to cost you, if you end up at the bottom and you add up your categories and it's more than 90%, then you have to change something because the only place that more than 90% is going to come from is from the 10% we started with on the top. And that's not allowed to be reduced. It's simply not allowed. 
So now we have budgets and we have to monitor those budgets every month. And if they come in under budget, we need to ask, why did we come in under budget? Let's say that's a good thing. Why did it happen? See, most people only ask the question why when things aren't going well. And then they usually come, don't come up with all the right answers. So it doesn't do much. But when things go well, we have to ask, why did that work well? Because we want to know, is it sustainable? Can we duplicate that success? Or was it a fluke or an accident? So when things, when sales are booming, you should have a strategy meeting and bring the key thinkers together and say, why are sales booming? Why are people selling at this high level? Or why is the conversion rate? Is it, is this sustainable? Is this seasonal? Is it a one-off? So you can understand what's happening in your business and plan for greater success forthcoming. Of course, when things are over budget, we have to do what I call a post-mortem. Post-mortem is where we look at what happened. We cut it open. We dive in. We break it down. We say, how did this happen? Why did it happen? And then there has to be responsibility when budgets are over. Because a budget means this is what you can do. This is the percent you're allowed to spend out of that 90. And you spent more than that, Mr. Smith, in marketing or in installation or wherever. you got to come back and say, where did you get the authority to spend more than your percent? And how are we going to make it up? See, most people have these meetings when the numbers are off and they talk about them and they usually argue about them. And at the end of it, most people walk away and go back to doing exactly what they were doing the day before. So the meeting should always end with what are you going to question the owner needs to ask? What are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? What are your action items to help bring you back into budget? And then last, where are we going to make up what we lost because we infringed on our 10%? So when you have these monthly meetings with your key people and you work with this premise of the 10 comes first, not last, the 10 is assured it's not hoped for and you hold people accountable and you celebrate when people are doing great. And then if they're not, if it's not producing the 10, if you're going over your 90, then you have to have that real honest conversation. If it continues, it's a sign that probably you may not have the right people managing certain departments. Or it could mean people that work for you do not believe that these budgets are real and that they are a line in the sand that cannot be crossed. And that may, may indicate a leadership problem. But by following these simple ideas, you can set your company on 10 plus percent. And I've helped several people, four or five percent, one company, three percent, sometimes seven, eight percent, but get to 10 and now working on moving some people from 10 to 15. I have some clients, Brian, now that we're at 10, our three-year goal is to move them to 15. And I'll tell you, it's an exciting thing to see. When the owners are taking a good compensation package, everyone else is well taken care of. There's 10, 11% on the bottom line, and our vision board has 15% on it. It's exciting.
It is. That that's that's great. And 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 for everybody that's listening, so we could stop the we could stop this right now. I wouldn't because I got Joe and I got more questions for him. You could go back and listen to that three or four times and pull out but what he described to you right there in this last six or seven minutes was how the best companies do it. If you're performing, this is how you do it. The other thing that I really loved, Joe, is that you, like me, I subscribe to the whole theory of profit has to come first. You have to plan the profit first. That's what's the most number. And I really liked your way of doing it where it's, you only have 90% to work with. Make the numbers work within the 90%. Let me ask you something about, and I want to talk about sales too, because I know you're a master at working with sales teams, but I want to stick to this subject here for just a few more minutes. One of the big things that I think hurts a lot of companies, they're just not pricing jobs correctly. And that's why they're just not bringing in enough money in order to be able to pay everybody to pay everything, the overhead, the marketing that they need in order to grow the company and have that 10% net. So can you talk a little bit about price? Absolutely. Many times when I meet people who are working hard, producing good work, they say, I don't understand why I don't make more money. The first thing I do is come through their profit and loss statement. Immediately, you see at the top, we're going to have cost of goods sold, COGS. Now, a lot of people put the wrong thing in COGS, material and labor, everything associated with material and labor. Now, some people will add sales as a separate line item. That's fine. I didn't in my business. We had it as a separate one right below COGS. But either way, the problem is right after COGS, you have your cost of goods sold total line, and then you have what's called gross profit. How much is left over? Gross profit to deduct all the other expenses from. And when that number, that percentage is too low, all the percentages below are going to eat it up. So how do you how do you deal with that? Well, the key is this: you've got to think if you're an aggressive marketer and you want to build an ever growing business. And when I say aggressive marketer, I'm talking about someone that says, I want to get to 3 million, then 5 million, then 7 million, 10 million. If you're doing 2 million, you're making yourself a a good living on their salary and you're making another 200 grand a year. That's fantastic. And if that's all you want to do in the business and live a great life, you don't need to do anything more than that. No one needs to push you to double your business. And you shouldn't. As long as you're happy, you're content, you're in control. When I say aggressive marketers, I'm talking about people that have a bigger vision long term. So what happens? You pretty much need to have, as a general rule of thumb, about 40% max of your material and labor and associated ancillary costs. Some people say, well, I don't include all my little trim materials or if we got to do a special this or rent a piece of equipment for that. All of that goes into M&L, material and labor. Great rule of thumb is don't let it go over 40%. Now, it's easy to figure up what our pricing needs to be at that point. And quite frankly, without getting into a very complex mathematical and business conversation, I will tell you that if you take your, if you will use this 40% as a model, you will be in a position to make more money. Now, here's the key. Take material and labor at 40%. 
and multiply that times 2.5. You'll get a retail price that allows you that that uh, 60% gross margin. Now, that may not be your book price or what I call your retail price because you'll have promotions, incentives in your marketing. So you have to account for those. And you have to account for them just the way that Macy's and every other retailer and Best Buy and every other retailer does. Don't ever think for a minute that when Macy's is having a men's suit sale and it's like 45% off on Saturday and Sunday only, these suits came in at cost, cost on the rack all month long, and now they're taking a massive loss. Not the case. There's a retail markup, and then there are promotions. And at the end of the year, they've done it right. They end up just where they want to be. If you're not starting with a 60% gross margin, that's after incentives now. That's your baseline pricing. You're going to have a very difficult time growing a dynamic sales organization, producing an ever-increasing volume of business, and having the kind of skilled labor that you got to pay a little more for today to do the quality work to build referrals and repeat business. Something, Brian, you know well about. You just can't have anything left over if you start at too low a price, which means too low gross margin. I hope that's helpful. Builder Prime is changing the game for home improvement contractors. Imagine having everything you need to help your business grow in one place. CRM, estimating marketing automation with SMS, production management software, and now call center dialer integration, all wrapped into one easy to use package. And it's never been easier to switch CRMs. Hundreds of contractors trust Builder Prime to grow their businesses with powerful reporting tools to see which leads are making money, which sales reps are the top performers, and where to optimize for the greatest impact. We're talking about winning more jobs, boosting productivity, and delighting your customers. Are you ready to fuel your business growth even faster without all the daily frustrations of your current tech stack? You owe it to yourself, your team, and your business to learn why everyone is switching over to Builder Prime, the only true does-it-all CRM for home improvement contractors. Head over to BuilderPrime.com and request a personalized demo with an expert today. A lot of people, that all makes logical sense. And one of the things I learned a long time ago when it comes to pricing is that it's a logical argument, but people get very emotional about it. And they don't see how you mentioned when you were talking about your background that your company, you were, I think you said 40 to 70% more than everybody else. I subscribe to the same thing. I don't want to be the, I don't want to even want to be in the middle. I want to be one of the highest priced companies and all of my home improvement companies. That's where we were. And what we had to figure out was, oh, how are we going to create enough value to justify the price? That's one side of it. The other side of it is, and this is an area that you know very well, is that, well, somebody will say, yeah, I want to raise my prices, but my salespeople won't let me, you know, or I'm afraid to because I'm going to lose business. That's that's what seems to be what's going on in people's heads. How do you get how do you get past a how do you get past what's going on in their heads? How do we help them? take an emo- uh, logical, it's a logical argument that they're making emotional. How do we take it back to being logical? And then also, how do you deal with the salesperson issue? Yeah, just great question. So rule number one is this. 
The business side of the business is math, M-A-T-H, math, and it's logical. And if you don't approach it as simple math, 10 on the top, 90 for everything and everyone else, then and you keep the emotion out of it, then you will never reach your profit potential. Millions of people across the country do great work, whether it's a $500,000 company, a million and a half, or much, much bigger. And they don't reach their profit potential because they do get too emotional. So we have to understand part of this business is math, and math is not emotional. It's that simple. Let's start with the reality that the owner has to set the standard. And fear management and fear leadership will always produce the same result, poor profitability or failed business. Run your business with a perspective of fear. What if my salespeople quit? My salespeople say we can't, we shouldn't. The competition, and those are all these emotional things. And if you react and respond to that, you will never make the profit you need to. And that's the reason that most companies fail. How do you deal with it? You got to have an organized, systemized of meeting the customer, presenting what your company does that makes you unique. You need to have a well-crafted company story, a presentation that may take 13 to 17 minutes maximum, separates you and elevates you from the competition. It's a must. Now, if you truly do great things, you have to develop a presentation, something that I do nearly monthly for someone, and how to capsulize that so that the company says, at the end of your presentation, I don't know what your price is, but I want you to do my job. That's when you know you've done the right company story. Next, you got to have the kind of products, again, that additionally help you separate and elevate. You've got to show the little things when they're all added together that make a huge difference. Through an organized, systematized selling process. I know a lot of people who are modeling hate the idea of selling jobs. They want to bid jobs, quote jobs. But if you want to get to the big money, you're going to sell jobs most of the time. So it has to be systematized. It has to be based on asking questions more than talking more. In other words, you need to tell a little bit, then ask a relatively short question, and then have your prospect, your potential customer, give you an answer in a big paragraph. Unfortunately, when I do ride-alongs, I see the salesman doing paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of talking, and then the customer gives these with virtually no questions, very short clipped answers. So we as the salespeople, when that environment exists, learn nothing. We learn nothing. Then when we finish the presentation of the product, we've got to confirm in simple terms. We have exactly what they want. I mean, nothing is missing. We have to confirm they absolutely trust your company to meet or exceed all of their expectations. And then we have to do a pre-close, a preliminary agreement to buy, not an agreement to buy, a preliminary agreement where they would indicate that only affordability, not price. Let me repeat, affordability, not price. People buy things all the time and the prices are very high, but it's made affordable. Think about it. No one would own a house based on price. It's based on monthly affordability. And great salespeople put that in their presentation. They sell monthly payments 
and how to have a masterful project on an affordable basis. So we need an agreement that only money could stand in the way. That's called a pre-close in my universe. And then we just need a planned price presentation that explains your pricing, any incentives that you have, and if you have a little nudge incentive, not a reason to buy. Listen, it's not the reason to buy. It's a nudge. If you feel comfortable and you're ready to go forward while we're here, we have just a little extra savings kind of tip you over to our side of the table, if you will. But it has to be planned and scripted and presented comfortably and confidently. Now, one of the first things you can do to increase sales immediately is to plan plan in your system, train and coach and practice, practice, practice. Nothing works without practice. A proper pre-close. Now, in our industry, there's two approaches. The most common that's been taught for the last 60 plus years is what's called the positive no. And that's at the end of a great presentation and the product commitment. The product commitment is nothing more than looking at the prospect and saying, is this exactly what you want for your home? With a little enthusiasm, by the way. Is it, do we have everything you want just the way you want it? Whether it's a kitchen or a bath or a roof or a sunroom, it doesn't matter. Do we have everything just the way you want it? They say yes. Then we were taught to enthusiastically say, well, folks, could you think of any reason other than simple affordability being price or payment that we shouldn't go ahead and get your project started right now other than the money part? And then people would say no, or they would say not now, we're not ready or whatever. But it was a question designed to tell us, have we earned the right to present the price and ask for the order? Now, if everything else was done well, 90% of the time, 90% of the time, people said, no, nothing other than the money part. Got to be affordable. So that's a positive no. But I want to share with you something that's 10 times better, and it's called getting a yes before the price versus a no. Now, keep in mind, I had been trained and perfected this process called the positive no. When I got introduced to the premise, and if you think about it, the psychologists say, right before you give them a price, what do you want after the price? The answer is the same. I want to say yes and buy from me. Well, the psychology involved in this would say, well, why would you ask a person to say the word no right at the very end before you ask for the major yes? Blew my mind. Here's another way. Sounds like this. You'd simply say, at this point, all of my customers pretty much say the same thing, Mr. Ms. Smith. They tell us they trust ABC Remodeling to do the work and meet their expectations. They love the products and feel like we have exactly what they want, just the way they want it. And in fact, they tell us if it can be made affordable, They're ready to get started right now. But they also say, if it can't be made affordable, well, they simply cannot move forward. So tell me, is that where you are? Yes. It's a powerful thing. That's really good. So, Brian, what we do there is we employ a ton of social proof. Think of the language. All of my customers pretty much tell me the same things. We're telling them what other people do. They tell me. They step after step after step. And then at the end, we simply say, so tell me, is that where you are? Powerful. 
The most important part, Brian, is that we boil it down to if it's affordable, they buy. If it's not affordable, and we acknowledge that, if it's not affordable, they don't buy. And isn't that what we want it to come down to in the end? That's really good stuff there, Joe. Wow. Well, thank you, Brian. I think that, um, wow, I have other questions for you, but I'm kind of letting that sink in with everybody you know, that's listening. I mean, Joe just gave us some really powerful stuff. Let's talk about, you know, while we're talking about the sales system, I know that there are a couple of other areas within the sales system that are problematic for salespeople. And one of those areas seems to be the exact opposite end of where you just were. And that is just getting in the front door. Can you talk a little bit? So it's, it's, you know, let's just frame what we've talked about here so far, just so that we could kind of see the progression for everybody that's listening. So we started off by talking about profitability. You know, if you're, if you want, if you're in business today, you got to be in business to make money. You know, this is, we're not running charity organizations here. So it's not fair to you, to your family, to your team. If your business is not making the money it should make, it's also not very good for your long-term prospects. Then we segued into, well, what are the things, you know, how do you determine and build out that profitability? Then we talked about the kind of what gets in the way of people getting the right profitability. That got us into talking about having a sales system. This is one of the things that Joe, it's, and I know you deal with this all the time, is it more, much more so than, than I do, but you need to have a system, a duplicatable, repeatable, trainable, consistent system for making sales. You've got to add value into your sales presentation. And then you just gave us some really good language and word tracks for how do you get, how do you get to the, you know, the pre-close. I want to now let's jump back to the beginning of the actual sales presentation and let's talk about just getting in the door. Cause I know that that's an yeah. area that people have struggled with. And I know that you're, you're very good at, at that part of it too. So let's talk about that. Yeah, Brian, an awful lot of people really misunderstand what we're going to somebody's house for. I think of it in simple terms, and I suggest that everyone think of it, that we're going to someone's house to put on a live infomercial. It's QVC live at their home. We have an appointment. Most of the time it's confirmed. The mindset for most people and what they want as a salesperson is to knock the door and have somebody very friendly answer the door, welcome them in, make it easy for them to make their presentation, to make it easy for them to have an enjoyable visit and make it easy for them in an ideal perfect world, which we don't live in, uh, to, to make the sale. But unfortunately, the real world is a lot tougher than that. So what we often experience early on from a very lesser degree to a very high degree is what I call early resistance. It could be early resistance to the appointment. It could be early resistance to the presentation. It could be early resistance to a company story or to an inspection or to a product demo. Early resistance is basically where the customer takes control, starts telling the salesperson, you know, this is what I want. I don't need this. I already know about that. We get a lot of uh, 
And, and some of those other things that come out are things like, and boy, don't we love to hear this? I just want you to know I got three more people coming. Or we're not definitely we're not gonna buy anything. We would never and, and we get all that out early. You know, it kind of affects our psyche. And that's early resistance. And unfortunately, the vast majority of salespeople, when they get hit with much early resistance, their brain filters that through all their past experiences. And they start deciding in a millisecond, a thousandth of a second or so, you know, I've seen this before. I know what this is. I know where it's going and it's not good. And then the process gets shortcut, you know, along the way. And then we end up no sale. So let's talk about how, what is the best way to take the most difficult or moderate or minor early resistance and really deal with it in an easy way that puts you back on a positive footing. So let's just say you've gone to the door and the people have given you that line. Look, I just want to be clear. We're not buying. And then they do that whole thing. I call it throwing up all over my shoes. They just come out with all of this stuff. Here's all you got to say. I understand. No problem. Think about that. Most people immediately launch into what they do, how they do, or why they do it. Say, Mr. Jones, I understand completely. I'm here with the understanding that you're looking for some good ideas and a price. And if you're like most people, there's probably two things you'd like to avoid. First, you probably want to avoid any experience that would be unpleasant with a salesperson. And secondly, you probably want to avoid paying more than is necessary. Now, sir, ma'am, tell me, am I close on that? They'll say, are you close? You're at the center of the bullseye. What are you talking about? See, suddenly you're a complete different person than anyone else they have ever dealt with. Think about that. I understand, Mr. Johnson. Sir, I want you to know I'm here. With the understanding, you're simply looking for some good ideas and a price. And you know, if you're like most people, you're probably wanting to avoid two situations. The first being having an unpleasant or unfriendly situation with a salesperson. And number two is you probably want to avoid paying more than is necessary. Now tell me, am I close on that? They're going to say, yeah. Say, great. They're going to exhale, you're going to exhale, and now you want to go straight to an inspection of what's important to them and their problems. So if you say at this point, however, Mr. Jones, let's sit down and talk for a while. You'll blow it up because what they want is someone to come and understand their problems, what's important to them, what they're concerned about, what they're worried about, what keeps them up at night. What wakes them up at night? They want to know, do you care enough about me for me to trust you to get my, for me to give you my money? And the easy way to do that is start with a phenomenal inspection where you really dissect whatever it is into the minutia, whether you think that's important or not. And you take lots of notes and you ask great questions like, gee, Mr. Jones, how long has your kitchen been this way? I mean, you got such a beautiful home. You know, right now, your kitchen really isn't representative of the quality of the rest of your home. How long has your, your kitchen been like this? When was the first time you thought we should do something and upgrade this kitchen? And tell me this. What's kept you from doing anything about it until now? How about this question? 
as you're walking along and you're looking at every little thing. Folks, tell me this. What would you say are the three most important issues when hiring a contractor or remodeler to work on your home? Now, I'll give you affordability. Don't worry about the money part. I get it. It has to fit in the budget. So with that out of the way, we just address the elephant in the room. With that out of the way, what would be the three highest priorities? Write them down. As soon as you do, you say, now on the flip side, what would be your three greatest concerns or worries about hiring a contractor or remodeler? Let me tell you what a lady in Texas said last fall. When asked her three greatest worries or fears or concerns, she said, well, number one, I believe it would be my jewelry. We as salespeople all knew that was coming, didn't we? Because we've been out there. We've been making presentations. We know the answers to everything, don't we? Number two, she said, is probably my husband's gun collection. We knew that was coming, of course. And then she said, number three, that the project would get started and drag on and just never get finished. You think hearing the three priorities and the three greatest concerns that we're able to slightly tailor that presentation and address those key six hot buttons and make sure that they were well-established in all the things we do and how we do them to make that sale? You bet we did. People have told me, Joe, the folks would just tell you when you get here, this is all we want. These are the things. This is what I don't want. If you can do all that, I'll buy from you. Wouldn't it make life better? And I say, absolutely. And they will if you'll quit talking and start asking the right question. As always, great Great content. We could keep going for hours, but I know that you have another appointment and you've got somebody to go and see. I know we can send everybody to DaveYoho.com. They can learn more about the Dave Yoho organization if they're not familiar with that. Do you want to give people access to, uh, to you? Yeah, put, you should put a little thing in and put my email in it and just say, you know, Joe has agreed to, if you've got one or two key questions, uh, that he would uh, uh, respond to your email and answer those questions for you. Is a little effort in getting you a little value from the G4 Profit uh, Solutions that um, you got a question or two that popped in your head during the program. Joe said, if you'll email him, he'll respond to every single request. He did ask to keep it to two questions, one or two, and do that for you. I'm keeping this live, Joe. So you just told everybody that they can email you and they can ask you up to two questions and you will be happy to respond. But why don't we give everybody, why don't you just give them the email address uh, here? Absolutely. Well, they email me at JT, T as in Tom, A-L-M-O-N at M-E.com. I'll do it one more time. J-T-A-L-M-O-N at M-E.com. I'll respond to every person. I only ask that you limit it to two questions and we'll certainly get them back to you quickly and hopefully be able to put you on the path to more profitability, which is why we're in business. And so look, for everybody that's listening, I say this, Joe, in almost every episode. I don't know who said it first, but I've taken it and I've used it. Success leaves clues. If you you hear recurring themes throughout all of these podcast episodes, Joe just confirmed a bunch of them. One of the big things is you don't have to do this alone. 
There are models that you can follow. There are people that you can go to like Joe that can help you take your business where you want it to go for you. An opportunity like this does not always come along to get access to somebody like Joe Tallman at no fee. Again, it'll be his email address, jtallman, T-A-L-M-O-N at me.com. We'll also include it in the show notes. So again, Joe, thank you so much. I really appreciate it to all of our wealthy contractor podcast listeners. Thank you. This is Brian Kaskavalsian with G4 Marketing Group. And until next time. All right. So that's it for today's episode of the Wealthy Contractor Podcast. Let me ask you, did it help you look at your business in a new way? Did it spark an idea or ideas you hadn't thought of before? Do you have a list of action items that you can take and implement into your business or your life today? I really hope so. Now, before you go, make sure you subscribe to the Wealthy Contractor Podcast so you get access to the latest episodes as soon as they're available. We're always striving to provide you with great content so you don't want to miss what's coming up. And a favor. I'd really appreciate it if you'd go to iTunes and post a review of this podcast. Let us know how we're doing. And finally, we started The Wealthy Contractor as a resource to help you, the home improvement entrepreneur, regardless of where you are on the wealthy scale, get where you want to go. We want to provide you with the motivation, the confidence, the resources, and the tools so you too can live the life of the wealthy contractor. Now, the wealthy contractor is a place where it's okay for you to want it all. In fact, it's not only okay, it's encouraged. So until next time, this is Brian Kaskavalsian with G4 Marketing.